Hi, I'm Pete Miller, President and CEO of the Institutes. We're a global not-for-profit whose mission is to educate, elevate, and connect the people focused on risk management and insurance. You're listening to Predict and Prevent, a podcast that explores how technology and resiliency can prevent losses before they occur. In each episode, we learn about innovative solutions and hear from leading experts on how they are making these approaches a reality today. Welcome to another episode of Predict and Prevent. Today we feature two leaders who are helping their customers prevent losses that disrupt lives, businesses, and communities. My first guest is Randy Hodge, Executive Vice President of Staff Insurance Operations for FM Global. Randy joined FM Global in 1990 as a field engineer focused on loss prevention and consulting with clients to identify and prevent losses. In his current role, Randy oversees all staff operations worldwide, from engineering and research, to innovation and analytics, to underwriting and client services. FM Global was founded on the premise that risk engineering can prevent big losses and make insurance more affordable. According to Randy, this foundation remains largely unchanged after nearly 200 years. We discuss the importance of investing in research and data to predict and prevent losses, especially around addressing climate risk and how to spread that expertise more widely. Randy, thanks for your time. Really appreciate taking time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us about a company, FM Global, that's certainly been in Predict and Prevent for quite some time. Great to be here. Thank you. Can you share with us a little bit about FM Global and your philosophy and what I think is quite an interesting history? Sure. I'm happy to do it. Yeah. And again, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. For FM Global's perspective, our unique philosophy is based on a simple premise, and that is that the majority of loss is preventable. It's preventable through applying sound engineering and science-based principles. And a lot of the loss that's experienced out in the industry can be avoided by application of these principles. And we're a research and science-based organization. So we are designed to understand the hazards that can threaten business and provide solutions ideally before losses start occurring. If you look at our founding of our company, it started in 1835 by a mill owner, a textile mill owner, just down the street here and outside of Providence, Rhode Island. And he was an engineer, a science-based individual. And at that time, textile mills were having very frequent and severe fires. And he thought if he could put some features in place, such as more substantial construction, some basic fire prevention programs, having some water around to put out fires should they occur, through those efforts, instead of big fires and explosions being acts of God, they, they were controllable. And he put together a set of principles to do that. He went to his insurance company and said, look, because I'm doing these things, I should benefit from better rate structure. And they basically told him, no, the good risks have to pay for the bad. That's too bad. Now, he wasn't satisfied with that. So he partnered with some other mill owners, like-minded mill owners, and they all agreed that if we share in these basic loss prevention measures, we can insure each other and have better, more affordable insurance and at the same time, less losses. And that was the genesis of our company. And Though the world's got a lot more complex, our basic business model has not changed significantly in nearly 200 years. So again, that philosophy, the majority of loss is preventable 
through the application of science-based standards. That's our whole philosophy. And to sum it up in our history, that's how it started. So Randy, genius is often simple, right? I mean, that's a genius idea to me. Obviously, execution or culture or something else has made that model really hard to replicate. So I'm curious how you look at that. It's a, it's a great idea. You've done it really well for a long period of time. But why is that so hard to replicate? Yeah, no, I make it sound easy because you just say, well, if you just apply, apply some science-based standards, you can avoid loss. But where do these standards come from? Where do you get the resources? And one of the cornerstones of our business model is we do our own research and testing. We have over 100 PhD scientists on staff. Their job purely is to do research into emerging hazards, provide our client solutions before a bad event can happen. And we operate the world's largest fire and explosion testing center, also the testing center for natural hazards, equipment breakdown, and all the myriad of perils that can impact a property from having a big event. We invest tens of millions of dollars a year in research. So the research-based standards, our people actually produce. And that can be applied and used for our clients globally throughout the world. That's a key differentiator. Another one is we also have a group that when research identifies an issue and a need, we have an approved products group. They can go out to industry manufacturers and say, look, we need, for example, a recent approval. We need solar panels that can be roof mounted that are not going to catch on fire and burn a building down. Because we saw a large wave of solar mounted roofing panels catching buildings on fire. And now we have three of them. So we can take research of the hazard into solutions, into products that our clients and quite frankly, anybody in the street could use. We're a mutual company. Our owners are our clients. They're one and the same. And so all the money that we make goes back into investing into understanding these hazards and helping our clients understand these hazards so they can make good decisions. Those are things that are, are very unique. Being a mutual gives us a lot of flexibility to do that because we're not reporting to Wall Street on a quarterly basis about thin margin profits that we're trying to maintain. We can take our clients' money and invest it in ways that will benefit them in the future. And we have engineers all over the globe. So we have engineers living in all parts of the world where our clients do business, regularly going to their facilities. They understand their business extremely well. They're integrated into the processes. They understand the particular hazards and they have really good relationships with the people on site to get them to have the dialogue about these hazards so the clients can understand them and take action. So those are just a few of our differentiators. Yeah, it sounds really easy, but it's very difficult to replicate. And having the research capabilities and the technical expertise is a very hard barrier to entry and one that we've got a very good track record on. You mentioned that FM Global is a mutual and you have clients all over the world. So I'm, I'm interested and curious, is there like a particular ideal client or things that you look for? Who do you want to partner with? Absolutely. Yeah. First and foremost, we start with clients that we would say, we use the term philosophically aligned, philosophically aligned on the premise that we're in business together to help prevent and mitigate losses, predict what's going to happen to head it off before the loss occurs and avoid disasters from happening. And sometimes that takes investment and companies that are willing to understand that risk and invest in the solutions to prevent the loss from happening 
That's first and foremost, for sure. Clients that are very concerned about their reputation are good aligned partners. People that are more interested in avoiding a loss than procuring insurance to transfer risk. And so that mindset aligns really, really well with us. Sometimes clients that have actually been through a big event, maybe they had a, a big flood in their past and they never had the advice on how to prevent it or mitigate it. We have a story in our, our annual report, the end of our 2021 annual report, a company called Coca-Cola Bottling Consolidated. They had a location in Tennessee a number of years ago that had a severe flood. We weren't their partner at the time. We partnered with them several years ago, discussed with them ways on which they could mitigate that flood by the, by the way they put in certain flood barriers on their site, relocated some pieces of critical equipment at a very low cost economically. And then two years ago, they had the same flood again. And they will tell you, instead of it being a disaster, it was a minor distraction. They were up in business the next day. So clients that have been through those events in the past don't want to repeat it. And they're really open to the advice. So we have less than 2,000 clients in the mutual. We're actively looking to grow that at a very slow and steady pace with like-minded companies out there that want to become part of the mutual. And for clients that do adopt it, we end up with some very, very long-term relationships. We have a dozen clients now that we've been partners with in excess of 100 years. Our average tenure of our client, over half of our client base by number has been with us over 20 years. So it's a, a long-term, philosophically, mutually beneficial relationship that we look for. And we invest a lot of time up front getting to know the companies. But typically when we partner, it's a long-lasting relationship, all predicated on that mutual desire to prevent and mitigate loss together. That's, a, that's an amazing statistic. I know our organizations has some partners for more than 100 years, but you don't often see that. You don't. And you don't often see the same companies around right. for 100 years, much less being a client of together. So. Yeah, really proud of that achievement. So what other incentives? I mean, the idea, you know, and what you're saying makes complete sense to me, right? A philosophical alignment. Let's not have a loss. That's a pretty good story. Are there other ways that a mutual helps you incent folks to, to get involved in these kind of efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Again, our clients are our owners. So if you were to make an analogy for a stock company, the shareholders are the owners. So when the main company does really, really well, the shareholders benefit by dividends or increased stock price or stock buybacks, things of those natures. As a mutual, when the company is very successful and we don't have big losses and we do have excess profits, we give that back to our mutual owners. We give that back to them by what we consider what we call policyholder credits. So for some of our clients that are excess of 20 years of tenure, which half of them are, they get a 15% credit off the renewal premium when we issue a membership credit. And since 2021, at the end of this next cycle, we'll have given our clients back more than $5 billion of return credit. And the beauty of that is many clients reinvest that in their own risk quality. So that money doesn't necessarily just go back into their pockets. It goes into them investing in hardening their risks and their other and protecting their assets. That's pretty amazing. Culture matters, right? Organizational and long-term relationships, particularly in this business. You couldn't be yeah. more right. I, I understand that last year, FM Global introduced $300 million resilience credit. Can you, and the idea is that your partners will reinvest in making their businesses more resilient. So in addition to the 
credits you just talked about, I assume this is a different program. Can you tell us, tell us how that program works and how members are using it? Yeah, Pete, that's a great, great question. Thank you very much. Yeah. So the membership credit is what I talked about. And that, that's a 10-year base credit based on our, our financial performance. Last year, for the first time, we initiated an additional credit, what we call the resilience credit. The resilience credit, the first one was geared towards incentivizing clients to invest in their own climate-related resilience, a resilience against physical perils from things such as flood, wildfires, wind, hurricane, freezes, all the things of natural hazards that can impact a client. We released a new suite of tools. We call it our climate resilience suite. And within there, we outline for the client actionable things they can do to increase their physical risk against certain climate-related peril. We provide to them what those issues are, what they can do to fix it, what it will cost to fix it. And we also, through our analytics, give a priority of which ones will have the biggest impact and have the most likely likelihood of occurrence. And then in addition to that, we also gave them money, 5% against the renewal premium, to specifically apply and invest against those items that's in their, what we call their climate risk report. So we were excited to deliver that last year. We initiated at October 1 of 2022, and the clients that go through the renewal will get that all the way until the end of September of this year. We hope to do those more and more in the future. And that really gets even more so to the mutual benefit aspect. Because you think about it, if our clients benefit and they don't have the loss, the mutual will benefit more financially. Thus, we'll have more credits to give back to our clients and they'll have more money to reinvest in their own resilience. And you can see that's mutually beneficial cycle perpetuating for in a very healthy way for both of us. And I think in this one in particular, when you look at the climate impact, the frequency and severity of loss has just been on the rise, especially the last five to 10 years. And you look at many of these events, they impact widespread areas and the areas that they impact impact communities. They impact hospitals. They impact companies, like I said, that make pharmaceuticals. They impact companies that supply power, heat to our homes. They impact companies that make food. And by their being resilient and be able to operate after a disaster to their communities that need them is a, gig a gigantic win. And our, the fact that we're contributing to that is really, as a mission-based company, really helps motivate our employees and, and breeds a lot of loyalty and engagement with our clients. So thank you for asking me that question. That's something that's working really, really well right yeah, now. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting program. When I was reading about it, I don't recall hearing such a program ever frankly. No, we, we, and to be honest, we had to really sort through how we were going to do it. And uh, that was a fair way to do it and tie it to the climate resilience was just a real natural fit. So you talked a lot about challenges of climate risk. Are there other ways, and you mentioned some, but are there other ways that you're helping your uh, members with climate risk? So one of the cornerstones I talked about was our, our climate risk report where we outline the, the actionable things they can do to mitigate the physical risk from climate impacts today. In addition to that, if you start from a bigger picture perspective, we have what's called the resilience index, and that's available to anybody who goes onto our website, fmglobal.com resilience index, and it gives a scoring by the different geographies within the world and how they relate to their overall resilience to loss. In there over the last, 
two years ago, we added features on there that allow people to understand the climate-related risk that they face in those various territories. So even a non-client, we see the, the usage on that. Non-clients use it as much as our clients do to understand it. So that gives a, a big picture of the type of things you should be concerned about. For existing clients, we have the climate risk report I talked about, and we just released what is known as the climate change impact report. So our research team, through our team of climate scientists, came up with ways to predict where our client's footprint is right now, what the impact of climate change will have in 2030 and 2050. So it talks about things such as extreme precipitation leading to localized flooding, impact to sea level rise, wind speed changes, extreme temperatures, and extreme drought leading to more frequent severe wildfires. And those are provided to our clients. So they, with the climate risk report, they know what their risk is today. The climate change impact report will show them how it evolves in the future. So they can make good decisions about how they want to invest as they grow and expand and operate throughout the world. You can imagine if you're going to be starting tomorrow and building a building that you think has a expected useful life of 50 years, you're interested in what it looks like today, but you're also interested in what it's going to look like in 2050. So we provided that as well. And the last thing that we added to our suite of climate tools is a, it's called the, the climate reporting job aid. And all the data that our engineers have collected in our clients' locations for decades on natural hazards, it turns out that the vast majority of the data that clients need to report on for the impact of climate change on their physical resilience and how climate change is impacting them, we provide a much a vast majority of that data and we can summarize and give it to our clients. And we show them how they can report on it, especially outside the U.S. as more and more regulatory bodies are asking clients how they're dealing with climate change impacts. Well, I imagine that's a big value add because as you say, compliance, especially outside the U.S., is, is getting very much stepped up and that's an expensive proposition, right? It is. We had to do it ourselves for our, our license in Singapore and we published that. And it is a major undertaking. And it turns out the data we have was instrumental in putting it together because we are a client of ourselves and we, we have all the data. We held ourselves to the same levels as our clients wherever we operate. And so we had all the information we needed to make a really good report. So let me switch gears for a sec. There's been a lot of advances in technology recently. And I think what our premise is that you can capture and analyze data faster to prevent potential losses, sometimes even in, in real time, especially when we're seeing, as you said, increasing frequency and severity. So what are the, some of the things that FM Global is doing around that? In addition to our engineers going out to client locations, we have a lot of client locations that are that we're not able to get to immediately. And we've developed a tool using aerial imagery combined with artificial intelligence. And we've trained the imagery through artificial intelligence to look for climate-related perils that we can get that we can get from out visiting the site. For example, we've trained the model to look like an engineer, to look at a location. We can overlay whether or not it's in a flood zone. We have flood maps that show roughly how deep the water is going to be where that client is exposed. Our aerial imagery can pick, pinpoint all the different elevations in the client location and predict how much water will go into the building. From there, we can develop what the loss impact will be to the client. And we can share that information with them more quickly than we can by sending an engineer out. We've done the same thing for wildfire. 
We can quickly assess areas that we know are in wildfire zones. We can differentiate how close they are to the vegetation, how tall it is, how dry it is, whether it's normal landscaping, whether it's actually dry brush. And we can give an exposure assessment to our clients as well. And now we're even training the models to look at roofing systems in hurricane zones and look at fastening patterns of roofs to see whether or not they've got vulnerabilities to wind uplift. Again, this is just to do that before our engineers get out there. And for client locations that are not of significant value or size for us to send an engineer out to practically. So it expands our capabilities and gets our information to our clients much quicker. That's, that's just one of the tools that we've developed that we've been using right now, and it's getting a lot of good use to our teams. You answered earlier about your resiliency index and a, and a series of reports that uh, th- those are generally available. Some of those are, and then some are to members. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. The resilience index is available to anyone. The engineering standards and the approved products that I've mentioned to you that we've approved for safe activation to protect client facilities, those are all publicly available. So our engineering standards that our, our research comes up with and from produces standards, for example, of how to design against hurricanes, those are publicly available. And so are the approved products in addition to the resilience set index. But there are also some other products, of course, only our clients are going to have because it requires a more intimate understanding of their business. For example, in addition to the climate tools we talked about, we've had for several decades what we call our risk mark benchmarking and scoring system. And that gives the client a relative risk score of things that impact their facilities from fire, natural hazards, mechanical electrical breakdown, and human element factors. And that gives them a scoring system in terms of where they are. It gives them a score of where they could be, and it helps them prioritize risk mitigation. In addition to that, we also provide them a suite of analytics tools that help them understand also where to prioritize. Like, for example, in our risk benchmarking system, if you just divide up all of a client's locations into four buckets, the first top quartile being good risk, the body quartile being the poorest risk, we can show them that if you're in that bottom quartile, you're seven times more likely to have a loss. And if you do have it, it's 30 times more severe. And we can demonstrate that through our analytics. For the equipment factors, there's certain facets of equipment factors that we look at. And if they're triggered, we know that the loss is five times more likely to happen. We can point it out to our clients. And another example is we do sort of a, a ranking of all of our locations from a risk quality standpoint. And of the locations we physically visit, about 60,000 of them, the top 1,000, roughly the the top 2%, represent about 30% of our large loss. So by those different metrics and analytics tools, we can really triangulate into our client, for our clients, where they should focus and invest first to prevent loss, to identify the losses that are most likely to occur and then to guide them towards the solution that can help them avoid it. When you look at current risk landscape, what do you see that we could add? What do you see as things that could be done? I think the biggest challenge right now is the fast pace of industry changing. And what's happening is as many things that are happening in the world that are, that are really good and better for the world, inadvertently new hazards are created along with that. That's just, we've seen that for 200 years. I'll give you an example. 
decarbonization. Fantastic. Everybody's moving on that path. At the same time with that, it creates some hazards. The need for more green buildings leads to development of, say, better building insulation systems. But we see those insulation systems on buildings leading to very large, preventable, big catastrophic fires, like a Grenville Tower, for example. There was a lot of desire there to have a very green building that was more energy efficient and inadvertently created a hazard that led to a very, very big, impactful, sad event. We know those materials have impacted the food industry for decades. But the fact that it's being applied to other segments of the world that are in different building types are an evolution of the the decarbonization trend. Look at renewables. From a renewable standpoint, fantastic. It is such a smart thing to do. And when you do it, when you went back to the Houston freeze a couple of years ago, the power grid was extremely vulnerable because the turbines didn't have the proper freeze protection on them. So those were types of things that it was a really good idea. It was well thought out other than the fact that the hazards weren't identified that could have been preventable by a very small additional cost to have freeze protection on those. And where I think we're going in the future is with quantum computing, we're seeing the development and rapid development of new materials and new technologies faster than we've ever imagined. With that, there's going to be new hazards emerge. So I, again, I think the focus on research and understanding upfront versus waiting for the loss to occur after the fact is in need of significant investment. You look at artificial intelligence, look at ChatGPT, and I think what could em- emerge there is different threats to companies from the cyber angle. And cyber angle, not from stealing your data, but from going in and taking over your equipment or taking over your operations or bypassing safety features that could lead to catastrophic loss. So all these new technologies just have to be thought of of a lens of they're going to make the world better. But along the way, there's going to be some new hazards that are created that we're going to need to have solutions for. Well, I'm pretty confident, given that for 200 years, FM Global has done a fabulous job of first recognizing a great philosophy and sticking to it and making changes consistent with that philosophy and adding value certainly as customers that you'll be right at the forefront of changes going forward for sure. We like to say ahead of the loss before it occurs. Absolutely. Randy, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was quite insightful and very helpful. So I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Thank you, Pete, and happy to do it. It was such a pleasure to speak with Randy. I found it particularly interesting to hear that FM Global shares its natural catastrophe hazard data openly for others to use. This shows a unique dedication to risk prevention for everyone. My next guest is Anakul Lakina, CEO and co-founder of BurnBot, an advanced robotic solution dedicated to preventing wildfire losses. Anakul has a PhD in computer science from Boston University and founded a data analytics company called Guavis that was acquired in 2017. In our discussion, Anakul and I get into the role technology plays in scaling wildfire prevention efforts. We also discuss the importance of managing fuel for wildfires to reduce the peril. And Anakul shares how Wonder Labs, a climate risk research organization he co-founded with his wife, fosters community-centered conversations around innovation. Anakul, 
Very happy you're here with us today. Thank you so much for your time. I think done a little, obviously done some research. Very interesting what you're doing. Can you just share a little bit about your background and how you ended up founding Wonder Labs? I co-founded Wonder Labs with my wife, Shafali. And so as background, I'm really a tech entrepreneur and Shafali is really the policy and disaster risk reduction specialist. My formal education and training was in computer science. I got my PhD about two decades ago. That sounds like a lot, but it just feels like yesterday. I commercialized my PhD work into a data analytics company, which I built over 10 years, really doing large-scale data processing and AI systems, selling to telecom operators around the world. Shafali spent a decade with the United Nations, actually, including with the Secretariat for Disaster Risk Reduction in Geneva. And then she also worked around the world in South Asia, North Africa, and Southeast Europe, Australia, and also the U.S., really working on disaster risk reduction, both at the policy level, the programs level, and the research side. And then she got her PhD studying bushfires and natural hazards in Australia. The two of us kind of bring different backgrounds, and we decided to kind of create Wonder Labs and team up really in 2020 in the beginnings of the pandemic because we experienced the impacts of wildfires. So in 2018, there was a pretty destructive wildfire here in California, the campfire, the town of Paradise was burnt. And even though we were about 150 miles away in the Bay Area, that was really our first real visceral encounter because we were smoked out for two weeks. Very similar to what you are experiencing and what, you know, our East Coast friends have experienced recently with the Canadian wildfires. And then, you know, that 2018 event really sensitized us to wildfires. And then we witnessed them again in 2019 in Victoria, Australia. And then, of course, in 2020, we had wildfires all around us, even here in the Bay Area in California. We went from what is wildfires to here they are again, and it really hit home for us. So in 2020, in the pandemic, as I mentioned, when we, I guess, all had some time to think, we decided to create Wonder Labs with the mission to really catalyze innovative ideas, both technologically, social ideas, ecological innovations with communities that were on the front line of wildfire impacts. Yeah, fascinating. I was actually out in California right around the time of the campfire and had to go north of San Francisco. And yeah, that was pretty amazing. And obviously for the insurance industry, there were a lot of learnings done there. On looking at your website, you kind of have a matrix of how you approach this, right? The different stages. Could you just talk about that? What does that look like and how do you frame this problem? Yeah, absolutely. The State of Fire Tech was a a report we put out last year, and that was really our sense making of what are the challenges still to be solved in the wildfire space. And the way that we looked at that was just to organize all the innovation that we were seeing and also all the areas that were ripe for innovation. We thought it was useful to have a framework that looked at the space on the one hand from a disaster life cycle perspective, consistent with you know how disasters have been studied, look at wildfires really as that. And then the different stages then become really one around preventing disasters. So before even there is a disaster, what can you do to prevent it, mitigate it? 
But then the next phase from there is, okay, how do you detect these disasters as they're happening? From there, how do you respond to them? And then finally, how do you recover from them? So we felt like organizing the world in a, with that kind of as one dimension, the disaster life cycle stages. And then the other dimension really being where we felt there were, I would say, universal technology trends that were emerging. So everything from data and AI innovations that are going on, robotics, mechanization innovation, material science research. And so we found it useful to look at the space by organizing it in this two by two grid, if you will, with the columns really representing the different stages of the wildfire disaster prevention, detection, response, and recovery. And then the rows representing these different technology trends or technology innovations and how they could be applied in that matrix. So that was really our sense-making exercise, if you will, but we found that to be a really useful template to highlight where innovation can play a role and also where the gaps are. And I can say, I would encourage everybody listening to go look at that because it made a lot of sense in a graphic to me. So I thought that was very clear the way you guys laid that out. You're also the CEO of a startup called BurnBot. So can you tell us what is it, how does it work, and how you see it helping prevent catastrophic wildfires? Yeah, in fact, one of our early investments at Wonder Labs was uh, a new kind of technology to suppress wildfires. That's how we started. And that's how I met uh, Lee, the, who's my co-founder uh, and our chief technology officer at BurnBot. We were working on a completely different area. This is how innovation usually happens. We were working on technology to suppress wildfires. And then we realized that, hey, the best way to fight these big fires is to make sure they don't start. The old phrase, prevention is better than cure. And so we decided to really focus our efforts on treating fuels, treating dead vegetation, treating hazardous fuel loads, reducing them and removing them, and in so doing, prevent destructive wildfires from destroying our communities and our habitat. So BurnBot's mission is really to prevent destructive wildfires by scaling fuel treatment. And so what we do is we build and operate machines to really amplify our capacity and make fuel treatment more scalable, more precise, more predictable, more ecological, safer, and also all weather. So you can start envisioning really scaling our fuel treatment efforts because the thesis is if you treat the fuels and if you take out the fuels, the fires don't have anything to consume. There's a very direct relationship between treating fuels and reducing wildfire risk. Yeah. And I think that's part of what we're trying to say with this podcast is to predict and prevent. So as you say, kind of our corollary is the best loss is the one that never happened. And fire definitely, you know, is, you know, much better exactly. than I do needs fuel. So I'm curious, who does BurnBot see as their target customer? Is it businesses, local governments, individual homeowners? Who do you see as the target customer for that group? Yeah, it's actually all of the above. And when we decided that there was a business here, you know, what we really found was that the scale of the problem is really huge. You know, estimates put about 200 million acres just in the U.S. alone that need to be treated. Our current capacity is in the two to three million acres. From an addressable market perspective, there's a lot of acres that need this treatment. The key is how do you build and how do you scale to that? So from a customer perspective, those acres really fall in basically four different segments, if you will. The first segment are the big infrastructure providers. So critical infrastructure like utilities, transmission lines, 
both sides, highways, lines, railroads. And the goal over here is to reduce ignitions. We've seen power companies, utility companies really struggle with triggering wildfires. And so if you can treat the vegetation around them, you can reduce those ignition risks. So that's one bucket of customers, if you will, on the infrastructure side. You are correct that also local, state and federal agencies and land managers do fuel treatment and do vegetation management. And we see our role over there really as amplifying their capacity by providing technology to really allow them to treat in areas that they couldn't do because today's treatment methods are not very precise They're also very labor intensive. So we think our machines and our technology can really amplify their workforce and really allow them to get to some of the ambitious targets that have been set in some of the new funding that's come in from the Inflation Reduction Act and others. Outside that, also private timber companies, private specialty agriculture like wineries who have all witnessed firsthand and have an existential risk to their business if a fire can comes through and consumes their core assets. And last but not least, private property owners, homeowners, HOAs, towns, municipalities, communities. We have increasingly seen fires come in in open spaces and go into structures. And it's not just about hardening structures. We need to be treating landscapes also. So what we're finding is property owners, HOAs, towns, those are also investing in vegetation management and fuel treatment. Yeah, so this is fascinating to me because the statistics you gave are pretty startling, right? 200 million acres, I think you said, are possible and two or three is currently being done. So 100x problem. So I'm curious if we're saying wildfire tech is focused on detection, maybe less on prevention, Given those numbers, and what could we do to drive more attention to preventing these wildfire risks? Yeah, that's a great question. And first of all, I'm an advocate for tech and fire across the board. You know, we definitely need more thoughtful, mindful, intentional tech, regardless of where in the wildfire kind of disaster life cycle we find ourselves in, because wildfires are are perhaps the most concrete climate impact that we're experiencing globally right now in terms of damages, structures, acres, emissions, health, habitat loss. And tech definitely has a role to play to adapt to this changing kind of climate reality that we find ourselves in. But it's not just technology where the spending is, I would argue, somewhat unbalanced. Our overall spending Today, when it comes to wildfires, and again, I would argue most climate disasters is on suppression and recovery. Uh, And we do spend a lot more on response and recovery than we spend on prevention and mitigation. I think tech entrepreneurs and innovators are rightly responding to where the spend is. How do we make that spend on suppression and recovery more effective? And in contrast, really innovation and prevention and funding in prevention remains underserved, I would argue, and untapped, even though the science is very clear for every dollar that you spend on mitigation and prevention, you save anywhere between six and 30 on the response and recovery. And the science is clear that fuel breaks work. These are the fires you don't hear about because the fuel breaks stop that fire from destroying the towns. It's not just that the tech is not there. I think the overall funding and prevention needs to exist on a sustainable basis. And that's missing. That's just reflected. As a result of that, you don't see a lot of innovators 
jumping in, a lot of entrepreneurs jumping in on that side. But, you know, we believe at Burnbot that there's a huge opportunity in for innovation and a huge opportunity for impact and focusing on prevention. Just a quick story. I, I have a friend, a colleague, a business acquaintance who owns a vineyard north of San Francisco. And you mentioned one of the buckets, people with vineyards and other things like that. And right before the campfire that season, there was a, an excessive amount of rain in his area. And he called the local authorities and said, there's an excessive amount of rain and therefore fuel. And they said, we just don't have the budget <laughs> to come out and do fuel management. That could have prevented in his, now his vineyard was fine, but around him, it was not. And uh, I reflect on, I spend a lot of time in Arizona uh, and the, there was a lot of rain this last winter and there's a lot of fuel. And I'm hoping somebody in that area is taking what you're saying to heart because uh, prevention, as you say, is worth a pound of cure. So in terms of fire prevention and fuel breaks and fuel treatment, and are there standards or are there ways of looking at it that are holding back efforts to prevent catastrophic fires, especially at scale? I think there is very good work done on structure protections. And in fact, the insurance industry has been catalytic over there in trying to educate, but also standardize on home hardening measures and building code compliance. And those are all very good. But I feel like where we are missing a similar kind of standardization focus is really on how fuel breaks and fuel treatments are measured and modeled for risk reduction outcomes from an insurance and underwriting perspective. And, you know, we've seen this time and again, the devastating impact of these wind-driven fuel fires. Many of them are preventable. I would say that even the Marshall Fire, which was Colorado's most destructive fire in its entire kind of history, was a wind-driven grassland fire, which if you think about it, that extremely dry fuel build, if that had been treated and removed, we wouldn't have had those vegetation fires going into structures. I think where we're missing standardization is really on the vegetation side. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that we take a very structure out view. Now, let's make sure we harden our structures. If we ember proof our windows and we harden our roofs, we'll be more fire resilient. I also think we need to be augmenting that by looking at the landscape in view as well. So not just keep it as structure out, but augment that and also talk about the landscape treatments that can be done. And because increasing these fires are not happening somewhere deep in the forest where nobody lives. You know, in the 21st century reality, we've got vegetation intermixed with structures. You're seeing grass fires impacting the suburbs of London. You're seeing fires happening around roadsides, around power lines. So vegetation management can actually play an important role. So let's just drill a little more into, you talked a little bit about insurance. Most of the folks who listen to this, you know, work in risk management and insurance. Can you just amplify other ideas around how you could see insurance helping in wildfire prevention? I guess at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'd first start by saying that fuel treatments work and they can protect towns, cities, communities. And there's enough examples, enough evidence cases we don't hear about these as much because, you know, it's perhaps less sensational to show that the old county fire in 2022 was stopped in Napa County because of a fuel break that was done. Or the log swamp fire in New Jersey eventually stopped when it ran into a prescribed burn that was done earlier 
We don't hear about this, but the science is pretty clear that fuel breaks actually, because they remove the fuel, they're not only stop these wildfires, but they also give valuable staging areas for firefighters to respond. On the insurance side, we need to figure out mechanisms where communities that do fuel treatments and do mitigation are rewarded. I feel like even though the science is clear that fuel breaks work, we need that to manifest itself from the insurance side so that you we can incentivize and we can reward communities that are doing um, doing the hard work of putting in these fuel breaks and doing the landscape treatment. You're certainly doing a lot of very interesting and fascinating things and things that are actually making people's lives better and safer as well. When you look ahead, what what's next? What what do you see for you? What's the future or what things are you interested in going forward? We got to get this done. I guess the call to action here is, you know, we can solve this if we move with purpose and velocity and with intentionalities. We are approaching this from many different angles, as we've been talking about, but whether it's at the policy level or directly working with communities or creating kind of meaningful, sustainable businesses that allow us to prevent wildfire risk in communities or on private and public lands. We think just working with these communities, working with policy, catalyzing new businesses that allows us to treat these areas We want to continue to lend our voices, our expertise, our networks, our resources to solving solving this wildfire crisis that we find ourselves in. I think 90% of wildfires are human triggered. So what that tells me is that this is a problem that is human created and therefore this is human solvable. And we should not have, you know, towns getting burned down with destructive wildfires. We should not have that happen. This is something that we can solve. And with the right kind of focus on it, I think if we act now, I think this is something we can really make a, make a dent. So that's going to keep us quite busy for the years to, years to come, Pete. And uh, that's really what's next. <laughs> Thank you for that work. Thank you for your passion. I appreciate and am grateful for what you do. I think that is a huge problem. And as somebody who's seen and live near these fires, I think the work you're doing to prevent these is crucial. Certainly uh, look forward to seeing how this, how this plays out. So again, thank you for what you do. I appreciate your time very much today to take and to share your insights and your knowledge and your experience with us. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pete. A real pleasure to be on this podcast. And I'm really a big fan of that you're lending your voice to this important area of prevention and prediction. So good on you. And I'm glad I could, I'm glad I could be here. Today's episode of Predict and Prevent was truly an inspiring look at the incredible commitment and innovation that's happening right now in climate risk resilience and disaster prevention. By sharing research, expertise, and innovation, experts like Anna Cool and Randy will continue to pave the way for a more resilient future. I'd like to thank Anna Cool and Randy for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. I hope you learned something new and inspiring from this episode of Predict and Prevent. Predict and Prevent is a podcast brought to you by the Institutes. Subscribe on your preferred listening platform and join us for future episodes where we continue to dig into this approach and the opportunities it's creating for risk management and insurance.